Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we will uh, take a few moments, silent prayer, give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening. We're thankful for the way in which you continue to work in our lives, where God the Holy Spirit continues to work to push us, move us, motivate us toward uh, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. We're thankful that we have your word, that it is a sure and certain anchor in the midst of uh, ever-changing circumstances and uh, situations in the world that often seem very insecure Yet we have security in you and in your word. Father, we pray as we study tonight that things will come together in our thinking, that perhaps we haven't understood very well before, and that the, that the purpose that you intended with this uh, section of Hebrews will find its fulfillment in our thinking and our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. There we go. And we're going to look at the last verse, last couple of verses, just to pull a couple of things together for us uh, as we wrap up this uh, section in uh, in Hebrews. Let's go on over. I'm going to skip over. There we go to Hebrews 10.39. Okay, now we're coming to one of those great transition sections in Hebrews. Hebrews has... Five sections in Hebrews, five basic teaching sections, each followed, as I've said before, by uh, uh, an exhortation. There's an instructional section followed by a, a challenge to application or an exhortation section. Usually within those, there's a warning for what may occur because of failure. Very serious uh, warnings in Hebrews of the dangers of just basically wimping out in the Christian life, which is the problem that these uh, Jewish, uh, pre, formerly Jewish priests were facing because under persecution, under adversity, they were uh, just wanting to just bail out of their Christianity and go back in, just be assimilated into uh, Jewish society, Jewish culture, the uh, first century Judaism, uh, without being the object of opposition. And so this has been a focal point in this section we've been in, from chapter 7 through the end of chapter 10, and the focal point is really don't don't give up. And then the conclusion states, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, it's really important to understand some of the terminology in this verse because this is one of those hinge verses that uses specific one specific vocabulary word here that sets up the entire next chapter. And the next chapter moves us into the, the fifth section, which goes from 11.1 down to the end of the book, 13.25. The 11th chapter is your teaching section. 12 is an exhortation section related to uh, chapter 11 and the teaching there. And then chapter 13 is the overall summary challenge uh, for, the, for the whole epistle itself. 
Now, it's important to look at this terminology because the way it's translated in English, those who draw back to perdition seem kind, seems kind of odd. The word perdition brings into people's thinking the idea of, of uh, the uh, loss of salvation, perhaps, or not being saved or eternal condemnation. And that is seems to be clarified in the context because you have the word save, the saving of the soul, in the second half of the verse. But if we, you look at the Greek, it doesn't use the word sozo for saving there, and it really has a different, uh, different sense. Those who draw back to perdition is this Greek word, uh, hupostole. Uh, which means to contract, uh, to pull back. It's used in um, a lot of uh, several pieces of literature to indicate the state of being timid, just just not being willing to step out with courage and to go forward. So it has to do with being timid, being hesitant. It is used uh, in one context and referring to a body of troops that instead of being committed to the battle, just they just held them back because they were afraid to risk the battle. Therefore, the battle was lost because there was a failure to exercise courage. So there's almost a, 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 an idea in which this expresses uh, the idea of cowardice because it's a failure to, to push forward, a failure to risk. Uh, it's used uh, in Josephus of persons who have no reservations about indulging themselves in baseness, as the dictionary puts it. In other words, they are. it's used of those who are giving themselves totally over uh, to their sin nature. And so the writer of Hebrews says we are not those who are timid or who, are, who lack courage, and as a result, they are going toward perdition. Now, the word that is used here for... Uh, per, uh, perdition is not a word that focuses on uh, focuses on uh, a loss of salvation, but rather the idea of just the um, uh, it could be the loss of any number of things, uh, the loss of of, uh, of life, the loss of whatever has been gained, uh, and it can refer to physical. Uh, physical discipline, divine discipline that comes in time. And so uh, the word's used about 111 times in Scripture, and it has a variety of meanings, not just related to eternal condemnation, but also to temporal, uh, temporal judgment. So there's a contrast that's set up here between one group of Christian believers who are not pushing forward in the Christian life. They are not willing to uh, put it all on the line. They're not really to truly trust in what the Scripture says. They, so they, they, they just wimp out. There's no endurance. There's no perseverance. And they, they fail to really uh, seize the initiative and seize the objective. And on the other hand, there are those who uh, believe uh, to the end of the saving of the soul. So the word, therefore, translated uh, believe, it, it looks like a relative, but it's not a relative clause in, in the Greek. That's just the way it's translated uh, usually. Th- those who believe it comes across as a relative. But in the, in the original, it is simply a genitive. It's just those of faith. We're not uh, of the the of the spiritually regressive, we're of the faith. That's the contrast. And the word there for faith is pistis, which is the basic noun for faith, meaning faith, trust, confidence. And I think that the idea here is more on the confidence because of where we're going to go into the next chapter, that there is, that of the believers, advancing believers, there is a confidence, there is an aggressiveness in their spiritual life that is lacking in the others who just want to bail out and give up and, and, and wimp out spiritually. So Pistis has that idea of faith, of trust, of confidence, dependence. Faith is easily defined as uh, relying upon something or agreeing that something is true and living in light of that fact. And it's amazing how many people hit tests in life. You know, James talks about the fact that when you encounter various tests, 
because we know that the testing of faith, and it tests the doctrine that is resident in our soul. And I was talking to a pastor today, and two examples, and I'm going to change them up a little bit so nobody can trace them to anybody. Uh, the names are changed to protect the innocent. Two different situations that he's run across uh, in his ministry that show that when here you have believers who've been sitting, studying the Bible, been, been learning good, solid biblical teaching for years, and then all of a sudden they hit a, a, a real speed bump in their spiritual life. And in both cases, it happens to be with their children. So the adults are parents who are in their uh, middle age years and their children are adult children in their twenties. And in one situation, uh, there is a, uh, child, I'm not going to say whether it's male or female, that is, has been involved in missionary dating, which is always the path to perdition in the way it's used here. Uh, I can't, you know, there's so many pe- people who do that because they get, and Christians will do that. Sometimes because it doesn't seem like there's anybody else out there. And what that does is it opens the door of compromise at the very beginning with the world system. And what this exposes after time is that this person who is a solid believer starts dating somebody who is an unbeliever who is involved in a... uh, a cult, one of the major uh, non-Christian cults that claims to be Christian, and falls in love. And now you've got a problem because mom and dad have been, uh, are, uh, start getting brought in eventually because um, their uh, wonderful offspring wants to marry someone who is, uh, who is an unbeliever but thinks they're a believer. And so as you start to teach them about what's involved with this cult and what they actually believe, there's this resistance to that. They, they really don't want to hear how evil that doc, the doctrine really is in that cult group because uh, my son or daughter is going to marry somebody in that group, and so if I take the kind of strong stand that I really should take, but I've lost my objectivity because now it involves a child, then all of a sudden um, they start waffling. And you get into another situation that came up recently as an email was passed around related to the prayer, the Muslim prayer day tomorrow. Are you all familiar with the fact that, that there's this huge Muslim prayer day tomorrow on the steps of the Capitol in uh, Washington, D.C.? And so they're going to have this gathering of Muslims on the steps of the Capitol uh, and having this big prayer. So what are they praying for? Are they going to be pr- praying that the Constitution is followed, do you think, or for Sharia law? And uh, <clears throat> as one person commented, said, so we're going to have these Satanists on the steps of the Capitol praying uh, for the nation. I said, well, what's different from the uh, satanically inspired cosmic think system thinking people inside the capital who are praying for, you know, the collapse of the nation. You have cosmic one versus cosmic two. You just have different forms of, of worldly thinking engaged. One happens to be a vile, violent, aggressive religion. The other happens to be a, uh, a passive liberal religion. But, you know, they're both part of Satan's cosmic system. And uh, we need to be in prayer for that. But as this email went out, there was somebody else whose uh, adult child saw this and saw how intolerant. We can't be passing this around. This is so terrible to uh, say that all of these these people are and condemn them in this in this manner. And the, it wasn't a condemnatory type of thing, but we have to realize that people who don't believe in the uh, Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Uh, If they die tomorrow, they are going straight to uh, torments and then to the lake of fire for eternal punishment, and that is very real. But when you have children who have uh, absorbed all of the thought in the world system around them so that that is not a reality for them, then when they start seeing you as a parent saying, this is absolutely wrong and we cannot support that at all, you are viewed as being 
one intolerant, radical, religious nutcase. And, and this is happening again and again and again, and it's because there's not this, this faith in the sense of conviction and this faith in the sense of certainty there because uh, people believe Jesus is the only way, but they're not willing to really uh, push that to what it actually means or to work it out consistently in terms of their thinking. Uh, Jesus is either the only way or he's not. And you can't say, well, he's the only way for me, uh, which is what is kind of sitting around in the back of their minds is that, well, that's what I believe, but I'm not really going to uh, push this too far because if they do, then they're all of a sudden exposed as being so radically different in their thinking from all of their peers. And and that applies to people in their 60s as well as in their uh, 20s or, or, or in their in their teens. So faith has an element, as you grow and mature as a believer, it has an element of confidence, an element of certainty that leads you to exploit that in terms of life situations and in terms of how you uh, aggressively, and I don't mean by aggressive, you can be, aggressive in a nice way, and you can be aggressive in an obnoxious way. But as a believer, we need to be aggressive in how we are applying our Christianity and not wimp out in in fear and worry and the fact that, that the cosmic system around us just puts that peer pressure on us to constantly think, oh, you just, you're just like one of those uh, backwood snake handlers up there in Tennessee somewhere, one of those uh, uh, back backwoods folks who um, are always after the, uh, the the revenuers or something. You know that you're just backward. You're not you're not modern. You're not tolerant. And so we suddenly hear the world say this over and over again, and we become very uh, we, we start developing an inferiority complex. And next thing you know, you're like the the people that the writer of Hebrews is addressing, and you're wanting to just sort of regress a little bit and not be out there with your Christianity. So uh, Hebrews 10.39 is drawing this contrast between those who just want to regress and retreat in their Christianity and those who are going to aggressively exploit it in life. And remember when I say that word again, aggressively exploit it, I mean that you are actively engaged in changing your thinking by the Word of God, not that you're out there with some sort of obnoxious in-your-face evangelism that is more offensive in its method than it is in its in its content. So there's in 1039 there's a contrast between those who draw back to perdition and those who uh, believe to the saving of the soul. And I should have highlighted the word saving here. I changed it on the slide. But the word for saving is peripoiesis. Uh, peri is the, is a preposition. Poieo is the idea of to do. It means to sort of circle, encircle around. And it came to be used to mean, in one sense, keeping, uh, uh saving, preserving, um, and second, meaning is to gain or obtain something, to acquire something. But the third meaning is really interesting, the idea of possession. The idea of possession, owning property, which is very close to the idea of inheritance. Now remember, inheritance is a key concept that underlies this whole message in Hebrews, that we have an inheritance in the future, and that inheritance includes ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we fail and fade out uh, in the tough times in the Christian life, then we jeopardize our future rewards and our future inheritance in the kingdom and in heaven. We don't jeopardize our our justification or our position in the family of God, but we jeopardize our future position, our future rewards, which is identified as possession. So I think that this idea of the saving of the soul here and this phraseology, if it's used with sozo, saving of the soul is an idiom for saving the life. Uh, the soul is put for the life. And we did that in English for many years. We got it from the Bible. You know, how many souls were lost uh, when the Titanic went down? That's how they used to report that thing, that so and so many souls were lost. 
uh, and they're using the word soul as a synonym for life, and they got that from the uh, from the Bible. So we have this contrast set up in Hebrews 10, 30, um, 39, between two categories of believers. On the one hand, those who are spiritually regressive, headed to temporal discipline, and those who are of faith. Those who are of faith. But we are of faith to the possession of the life, that is, that full life, the abundant life that Jesus was talking about when he said in John 10, I didn't come to, uh, I didn't come like a thief to steal and destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. Two categories, life in terms of eternal life and abundant life in terms of the rich, full blessings that we have in the spiritual life if we're growing and maturing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So which category do you fit in? That, that's the issue. Now, This ends this section. The next section starts off. Now, let me set this up again. It ends by saying, we are a faith for the, for the possession of life. Forget there's a chapter difference. Forget there are verse differences. Just watch what happens. We are a faith to the possession of life. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What is that faith in Hebrews 11.1 1 talking about? It's talking about what characterizes this whole group of people who are pressing on uh, exploiting their position in Christ and the doctrine that they have and their walk by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just a matter of faith as an act of trusting but it incorporates a much fuller idea that includes not only the act of trusting, but what is trusted in the body of doctrine and belief that we have been given through the Scripture, and it is that that confidence in the Word of God and doctrine that gives us a personal sense of our eternal destiny. And what we're going to see when we get into chapter 11 and we go through this whole uh, history of various uh, heroes of faith in the Old Testament that are being brought forward as an example for us of those who did not let the speed bumps of life uh, catastrophically wipe out their spiritual life. They had failures. They regressed at times. They had uh, major failures at other times, but they uh, trusted and they utilized doctrine to keep them from being completely overwhelmed by the cosmic system in their generation. And what kept them going was a personal sense of eternal destiny. So problem-solving, the problem-solving devices are foundational to understanding Hebrew, what, what gives the key to their success in Hebrews 11. It is, it, it's not on the surface, but it's what gives them that focus. And the one that really comes to the foreground is going to be that personal sense of eternal destiny. And that is going to see that they, they, for example, Abraham sees that city that's built without hands. That he never owned the land that God promised him. But because he has his focus on a city that's built without hands, which is somewhere in the future in the undefined eternity somewhere, he's able to live his present life in light of eternity. And that is the motivational message that is in the book of, book of Book of Hebrews. And so as we come to this point where we change, get, shift gears into our next section, I want to take a, take the time to go back and summarize. And in the next 35 minutes, we're going to cover uh, Hebrews 7 through 13, half the book in 35 minutes. But that's important because now that we've done all this nitty gritty little uh, exegesis and we spent a year uh, going through all of the tabernacle, the sacrifices and everything, that takes an incredible amount of time to work out all of those details because every time I would, I remember when we were in that study, every day I would read those passages and see things I didn't see the day before. And you just feel sometimes like you're walking through quicksand. That's because there's just so much, so much information there to try to really uh, uh, deal with, uh, synthesize, and then uh, put it all together. And it's not always... Uh, easy to do that, but you have to do all that detail work in order to make sure that you're coming out with the 
with the uh, final conclusions and assumptions and uh, rather final conclusions and applications uh, based on the text. So just to give you a little review for the structure of Hebrews, the first section was in 1-1 to 2-4. There's a doctrinal exposition in 1-1 through 14 that was followed by a practical exhortation and warning in 2-1 through 4. Now, if you want to, you can just go back to Hebrews 1 in your Bible, and we'll just kind of walk our way through some of this. I'm not going to spend as much time in the first three sections uh, in terms of this review. I really want to focus more on the, the fourth section and then giving us an overview of the of the fifth, fifth section. Now, in 1, 1 through 4, we have the prelude to the book. God, who at various times in various ways spoke or has spoken in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us, indicating finality of that revelation by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. So from the very beginning, inheritance, that idea of possession is up front in the, uh, in, in the epistle. He, Christ is appointed heir of all things. In him we become uh, heirs of God and by virtue of maturity, joint heirs with Christ. Uh, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. And I've said here we have spoke in verse 1. Uh, God spoke. Verse 2, he has spoken. Uh, now we have word. Revelation is inherent to uh, this point. That's the focal point in those first three sections really is that God has spoken. What are you doing with it? If God has really spoken, how important is that to you? If God has really indeed spoken and given you personally a revelation, what kind of difference is that making in your life? Don't you think that's important, more important than just showing up at class on occasion or showing up at church on Sunday on occasion? If we really grasp what it means that God wrote this as a personal piece of information that he said you have to know this, if you are going to have any measure of success in your life, you need to know the, and, and capture and assimilate the thinking that's in this book. Do you really believe that? And are, are the decisions that you make in terms of the priorities of your life part of that? And that's the message in those first three sections if you just boil it down to, to one basic uh, doctrinal idea. And then the, it talks about the revelation through his son and the significance of his son and the ascension in that he's ascended above and placed above the angels in chapter 1. Therefore, if Jesus really is who he says he is, don't you think that ought to make a difference? Jesus is not just another historical figure like George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great. He is the eternal God of the universe who created everything, who is now totally uh, has been totally incarnate as a human being in order to reveal through himself as the living word, the spoken word of God. It's all about communication. So the challenge, therefore, is that we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. In other words, we must seriously pay attention to what the message is, lest we drift away. What's happening by the time you get to the end of the fourth, fourth chapter? I mean, fourth section. They're drifting away. They're, they're falling back. They're fading out. Uh, for if the word spoken through the angels, that's Old Testament revelation, proves steadfast, how, verse 3, how shall we escape it if we neglect so great a salvation? If we just take it for granted that we have the Bible, great, go home, toss it on the shelf, well, I'll grab it uh, Sunday morning when I go to church. How many times do you read through the Bible a year? How many times have you read through the New Testament? How many times have you read through the Gospels? How many times have you read through Psalms? If this is the Word of God, don't you think you ought to really be paying a little more attention to it than just take hauling it to Bible class three times a week or hauling it out when you have have a tape. This is a the most vital message you will ever get in your life. So then we go to the second section, uh, chapter 2, verse 5 through 4.13. There's the doctrinal exposition in chapter 2, 5 through 3, 6. And the focal point of this is really in those, those verses uh, 2.10, uh, 2, 9, and 10. 
But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste, that is, fully, fully, uh, in, in, fully partake of death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that is, uh, God the Father, it was fitting for him to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete through sufferings. Why? Uh, verse 17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, and to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He is the one who now comes alongside as our high priest, he is really the first comforter, and the Holy Spirit is the second comforter. Jesus said, I, uh, when I leave, I will send another uh, comforter of the same kind. And so there is the, the challenge, the teaching related to uh, Jesus as to who he is and what he accomplished on the cross. And then uh, the challenge is to be, uh, to be faithful as he was. Faithful is mentioned in verse 17, and then in chapter 3, verse 2, and again in uh, chapter 3, verse 5. Moses indeed was, was faithful. But there's a warning, and this is the warning that comes in in 3, 7 to 4, 13, and the illustration comes from those Jews in the wilderness who weren't faithful. And because they weren't faithful, they jeopardized what God had promised them, and they never entered the land. They lost such a tremendous load of blessing and privilege because they failed to exploit what God had given them. They didn't trust him, and they griped, and they complained, and they looked at all these circumstances that happened to them as if, they didn't, as if somehow God was, had lost control. They weren't the circumstances they wanted to have in their life, but they acted like somehow uh, these circumstances weren't under God's control either. But they were. And by failing to uh, exploit and utilize a doctrine that they had and to trust him and have confidence in God, more confidence than their own experience, then they lost that promise of rest. That takes us through uh, 4.13. And then we get to the third section from 4.14 uh, down to 6.20. This is going to now develop that whole idea of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it develops the significance of that priesthood and what he uh, provides for us as a priest because now it gives us the opportunity to have direct access uh, to the Father, and we are challenged in verse uh, in 4.14 to hold fast our confession, that is, the body of doctrine we believe, uh, because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. So the impeccability of Christ needs to be a reality to us because since he is sinless, we can ha- we are he is able to uh, strengthen us when we go through temptation. Conclusion: Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of needs. That leads into the fifth chapter and the qualifications for the priesthood, that in the Old Testament there was a qualification was just based on, on genetics, on lineage. They had to descend from, from uh, Levi, and the high priest had to be a descendant of Aaron. There was no spiritual qualification at all. He just had, they couldn't have certain diseases, certain other flaws or blemishes physically, but that was it. They, it wasn't spiritual, but the priesthood that Christ has is a spiritual priesthood, which then gets developed uh, in chapter in chapter seven. So the warning has to do with uh, ta- taking all of this lightly. The warning comes in in six four through eight. The exhortation section is from uh, five twelve, uh, really five yeah five eleven to six twenty, and the warning is in the middle of that. Those first uh, uh, eight verses or so of chapter six, and the conclusion of this in relationship to our spiritual life has to do with the faithfulness of God. He made a promise to Abraham, verse 13, and uh, he's going to fulfill that 
and promise is a key word there. It's used in 6.12, used in 6.13, used in 6.15, used again in 6.17, and that God is going to fulfill those promises to Israel and to us as church-age believers. Now, all of that takes us to the fourth section, which is 7.1 to 10.39. Now, I want you to think in terms of the trajectory here. There is a there is a place that this writer is going in your head. And if you can't read, then you, we get lost. And that's a problem that we've got today is so many people don't know how to read, and so they can't trace that those logical steps and flow of what a writer is saying. And that's what I'm trying to show here is there's a trajectory here. He has a target that he wants to hit, and he's using his all of these sections to drive us to that bullseye. And the bullseye that he's headed toward in this section is stated in uh, 10.18, the last verse. doesn't always work out that way, but in this case it does. And in 10.18, he makes the statement, Now, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. That's a conclusion. All of this material that he goes through in terms of the priesthood of Christ versus the, the Levitical priesthood, that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is a superior priesthood because it's not limited by the Mosaic law. It is an eternal priesthood. It's not based on simply uh, physical qualifications. It's based on spiritual qualifications because Jesus is a priest without sin. He is able to save those whom he saves to the uttermost for eternity because he is eternal. And so he then he goes into all of the sacrificial system in in detail that, that these priests would be familiar with, that as you look at all of the ritual involved in the Mosaic, Mosaic system and the uh, Levitical sacrifices and all of the things that were involved in the worship at the tabernacle and later at the temple, all of that is temporary. It didn't do anything for sin. There is sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, dead goats, dead sheep, dead uh, bullocks, all the way through the Old Testament, and it doesn't do anything about sin. There is just simply a ritual cleansing that takes place. But there, not only does it not do anything about, not do anything really about sin itself, but when it comes to willful sin, there weren't even sacrifices for that. And so his conclusion that he, that he drives to in chapter 10 is just this. This is an earth shattering conclusion for anybody coming out of the, any kind of work salvation or any kind of, of, of Judaism is that there's no longer a sacrifice for sin because of what Christ did on the cross. It's done with. You don't have to worry about it anymore. It's the end of guilt. It's the end of trying to pay for your sin. It's the end of trying to somehow impress God with who you are and what you've done and good works and all of the slavery that we put, that people are put under by religion. It's done. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And so there's this lengthy doctrinal exposition, which is at the core of this whole book in these, in these chapters from 7-1 to 10-18, all driving to that one conclusion. Now, we've just studied that, so that's fresh on your mind, because in the practical section, the challenge that comes up in 10-19 to 39, there's the, the tough warning passage starting in verse uh, 26, that if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And as I pointed out, what that means is, the willful sin's taken care of too. There's no longer a sacrifice for sin. And all of this is based on one critical, critical word that is used uh, again and again in this section. In fact, it's used uh, five times, four times in, uh, let me see, four times in chapter 9 and one time in chapter 10. And that is the Greek word hapax, which means once, once for all. Four, five times he, he mentions that, 9-7, that Jesus, 9 9-28, uh, 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 and 10-2. These are all passages that talk about Jesus Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. It's that one-time sacrifice covers everything. It ends the problem once and for all. And this is such a problem for people. It's such a problem for Christians because they just can't 
we we just have such trouble with grace. Grace, we, we have so much trouble with somebody giving us something. Oh, we want to do something in return. Well, that's nice. That's gratitude. But just for somebody to give you something, just out of the goodness of their heart, especially if somebody wanted to just give you a million dollars, and no strings attached, we, we, wait a minute, you know, we're suspicious. We feel like we have to do something. Uh, what's going to happen? When's the other shoe going to drop? When's the IRS going to find out? All of these things start going through our minds, and it's just a free gift. It is everything, and it frees us so that not so we can say, now I can get off scot-free with whatever I do, but so now I am freed from restraint so that I can live for God, move forward in my Christian life, and not worry about when I fumble the ball, when I drop the ball, when I sin. Um, I can just move forward because grace has taken care of everything. And so we're because we're in this cosmic conflict of the angelic conflict, because we're in this spiritual warfare that envelops us, there's always going to be opposition to anyone who is trying to go forward in their, in their Christian life. As you know, I meet with a group of pastors uh, on Thursday mornings. We have five or six that meet here locally, and then there's three or four that meet around the country. And about three weeks ago, I decided... Long ago, I decided, but three weeks ago we started. I started teaching a first-year Greek class to these guys. Some of them have had Greek before, but it's always good to go back and review first-year Greek, first-year Hebrew. I try to do something like this once every decade because there's so many little little rules and little things and minutia that you forget that you memorized at one time and it's dropped through the holes in the sieve. And uh, you have to go back and you pick it up and just strengthen you as you go forward. So I enjoy doing that. It's great, has a great benefit to me in my, my own study. But it's great to watch these guys come along. But it is amazing to see how every one of these guys, it seems, is being hit with distractions left and right, whether it's, you know, has to do with side businesses or it has to do with health or whether it has to do with, with uh, just, just uh, all of a sudden a lot of responsibilities at church and their ministry that wants to just push them off and say, well, you know, I just can't do it. I'm just too busy. I've got too many things going on. Uh, I'm just getting wiped out. Satan just tends to blindside us like that. So anybody who gets serious about their spiritual life and their spiritual advance, one thing you can count on is you're going to start hitting the speed bumps. You're going to start being T-boned by the cosmic system every time you go through a spiritual intersection. And if you're not focused on on going forward and what the real issues are, then you let these things that come up on a daily basis sidetrack you mentally, and next thing you know, your mental focus and concentration is just all out of whack because you're more concerned about the day-to-day problems or the details of your life than you are about implementing the Word of God to solve the details that are going on uh, in your life. And that's what happens with these Jewish believers is they have had rejection from family members. They have had hostility from this system that they have been in all of their life. They are facing, uh, in some cases, overt persecution. They have lost property. They have lost their homes. They have lost uh, the things that perhaps if they've been a career priest, now they don't know what it is that they are supposed to do. They have just been completely removed from that which gave them a comfort zone. And now they're in a, a, a totally new environment. And after a while, they just say, okay, I can't take it anymore. I, I want to give up. And so this is where we come to by the end of chapter, uh, by the chapter 10. The writer is saying, okay, are you going to be counted with the weenies who wimp out? Are you going to be with those who are mentally tough, spiritually focused, who are going to endure and persevere to the end, who are going to achieve the objective uh, and the mission that God has set for you in your spiritual life so that you're prepared for what comes later? Uh, which side are you going to be on? And then he's going to give us these illustrations of those who are on the side of conviction, those who are on the side of certainty, those who have uh, hung tough in the midst of opposition. And so the first two verses in chapter 11, 
are going to uh, bring us an orientation to the new the new section. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, a lot of you have heard people, as I have, have heard a lot of uh, great sermons on how this defines faith. That's not a definition. That isn't telling you what faith is. A definition of faith is it means to trust, to rely upon, to believe something. This is talking about what the uh, what the result of faith is. If you walk into a crime scene and you see a pool of blood on the floor, what's your conclusion? That is the evidence of what? Of, of a murder. Okay, if you walk in and you see somebody who's got strong conviction and faith, that's the evidence of something else. It's not defining the faith. It's telling you this is the evidence of a spiritual life and a focus that lies behind that. And that's what that, that's what this focus is. It's the substance of things hoped for. And we studied this word hope again and again and again. It means a confident expectation. It's not just sort of a wishy-washy optimism or an uncertain optimism that, gee, I hope it rains again tomorrow. We've had a drought and it really didn't rain much today. I understand some of you got a lot of rain today. Didn't rain at my house. Uh, my flowers, my vegetables, my yard needs more water, so I hope it rains tomorrow. Or I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because I need to be involved in outdoor activities over the weekend, so I hope it We don't know. And that's how we use the word hope. But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. The Bible uses the word hope for that conviction, that certainty, that you're more certain of what's going to happen in eternity than you are of how you'd the, the route you take on the way home, or that you'll get home safely. Most of us think, oh, yeah, I'm going to get home safely tonight. We assume that every time we go anywhere that we're going to come back safely. But you're, you should be more certain of what's going to happen to you in eternity than you are of how you're going to get home or that you're going to get home safely. So faith is the substance of that, that future orientation, which is our personal sense of eternal destiny. It's the evidence of things not seen. It's not tangible. You can't measure it. It's not an empirical thing. It has to do with the, the edification, the strength of your soul, and that strength comes because it's grounded on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ and the Word of God, the living Word and the written Word. For by it, by what? This is an important term. By it, by faith, it is a, um, it is a uh, feminine uh, pronoun, which means it refers back to a feminine noun, which is faith. By it, uh, the elders, that is the, the old ones, the patriarchs, the ones who went before, uh, the elders retained a good testimony. That's the introduction. And then we start seeing this phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith. And interestingly enough, what you have in verse 2 is the preposition in plus the pronoun, which sets us up to understand how we are to understand just the simple dative case that follows, and that is that it becomes the instrument or the means by which obstacles are overcome. And it's, it's faith. It's not just the act of trusting because everybody has faith. People believe in all kinds of things. Mormons believe in their thing. Muslims believe in their things. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in their things. It's what you believe in. It is that, that body of truth, that revelation, the word that God has spoken, the revelation that came through Jesus Christ. That is the body of of faith that we believe in. And it starts with creation. It just walks all the way through here. There's uh, 18 times we have by faith in this chapter, and one time when it's by it, referring to by, by faith. So 19 times there's a reference to the fact that faith is the instrument for advancing through obstacles. And uh, we go through Genesis. It's, it's, we, we've already done that. We've gone through the whole book of Genesis. So when we go through chapter 11, I'm going to avoid the temptation of drilling down as if I had never taught Genesis. So we're not going to go through, we're going to go through enough to capture the essence of what the writer is focusing on, but we're not going to do extensive detailed studies in each one of these uh, individuals. We start off with creation, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. That's all pre-flood. That's all b- before 
the flood and the first dispensations, the first age of the Gentiles. Same principle existed in that time period. It is by faith. Then you go into the uh, age of Israel, the age of the patriarchs, and then the age of of uh, Israel, the age of, of uh, the nation itself, the age of the law. And so we go through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and those are the patriarchs, and then Moses. And from Moses, we also look at the uh, Exodus generation at the Red Sea, the conquest generation. Uh, Rahab makes the roll call of faith. I'm always so encouraged by the people who make the uh, hall of faith chapter here because when you look at some of these people they failed miserably that ought to encourage us because most of us fail a lot more miserably than we think we do and and yet they found their way here and in some of them when we get down there to um for example verse 32 talks about Gideon and Barak and Sam, uh, Samson and Jephthah uh, they had one or two moments when they focused on the Word of God and applied it, and they became a faith hero. Just one or two moments. The rest of their life was pretty much you know, a spiritual washout, but they rose to the occasion at the critical time and trusted God, and they found their way in here, so there's hope for the rest of us. So we go through all these various uh, Old Testament heroes, and then at the end there's just the summary, uh, verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire. That gets into uh, Daniel and his friends. Uh, women received their dead raised to life, a widow of Zarephath. Uh, others were tortured, uh, Isaiah, for example. Uh, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. What's their focus? It's future focus. We're living today in light of eternity. That's the main message in chapter uh, chapter 11, and then it ends in chapter four, uh, chapter or excuse me, verse 39. And all these having obtained a good testimony through faith. Different phrase here. It's not the by faith. It's now a dia plus a genitive with the article there. Through the faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect or complete. That's that term. It's all through here. It has to do with focusing on maturity, uh, that we should be made, that they should be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, conclusion. Now we get into the exhortation. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is all of these who have gone before and they had failures and they had problems and they had rebellious children and they had problem parents and they had uh, they went through droughts and they went through uh uh retirement problems and they went through the loss of income and there's nothing you're going through that they didn't go through and a lot of they went through they went through it was a lot harder than anything you're ever going to go through so quit whining and wimping out like uh, uh like these Jews in the first century and get with the program and that's that's the message, is they went through really tough stuff. What got them through? It's the Word of God and the grace of God. Therefore, we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Not the race you wish it was, not the race that's set before somebody else, but the race that is the circumstances that are set uh, before you and run that race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and completer of what? What's that word? Faith. See how that goes all the way through this section. The faith, th- those of faith are focused on Jesus in 12.2. It's the same group that comes out of 10.39. And if you don't connect those dots, you lose the you'll, you'll lose the forest for the trees, and that that's the the thread that runs through this whole section. Jesus is the one who set that precedent for us in the spiritual in his spiritual life, and especially at the cross. Who for the joy set before him, the cross wasn't the joy. It is once again living in light of eternity. The long term destination was what strengthened him to endure the all of the pain of the cross 
so that he despised the shame, which means he just didn't regard it as something to worry about, and as a result has been elevated to sit at the right hand of God the Father. So verse 3, the challenge is to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Now, if you're a first century former Jewish priest who's been getting uh, kicked around and ridiculed and um, slandered and physically assaulted and robbed by your your former friends and neighbors, all of a sudden you, this brings you up short because you're thinking about what Jesus went through. And none of us have ever suffered. We haven't even thought about suffering in any way like the Lord suffered, leading up to the cross and definitely not on the cross. So we're to consider him who endured hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged. When you get your eyes off of Jesus, looks just like Peter did, you start sinking beneath the waves. And we have to keep our focus on Jesus. But we all do that at times. Uh, there's going to be discipline. That's the main idea in verses 3 through 11, uh, temporal discipline. But we can... Uh, have recovery, 12 through 17, strengthening the hands which hang down, the feeble knees, make straight paths. All of this has to do with recovery and confession of sin and going forward. And then you get down into the last part of the chapter, and it deals with the fact, this comparison that comes along between what we're enduring or what actually the original recipients endured in comparison and contrast to uh, those who came out of the Exodus. And verse 22 states, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. That's where we're headed. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, everybody in this room has gone through tough times. You've had, you've had losses, you've had deaths of people you love, uh, you have had financial disasters, you've lost jobs. There's not one of us in this room that hasn't gone through, through crisis. And sometimes when we go through those crises, we think that somehow excuses us to, to bailing out in the Christian life. But if you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, and Abraham or Jephthah or David is standing over there watching, and we say, well, you know, it was a little rough for me. I don't know about you, but I don't think that's just going to fly, not to mention what the Lord went through. And so we have that peer judge who went through so much more than we do, so all of our excuses just sort of evaporate, especially when it's abundantly clear at the time that we have everything that they had. We have, and more, then the Old Testament saints said, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, a completed canon of Scripture. So there's no, so, so there's no excuse. And then when we get to chapter 13, let me complete the outline up here on the screen. When we get down to chapter 13, this is the uh, final exhortation, the closeout of the, of the epistle as a whole, giving particular guidance and direction in different areas of the of the Christian life, and the focus, again, is Jesus, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We should not be taken off course by various and strange doctrines. This is in 13, 8, and 9, by various uh, and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart, that here has the idea of the mind, the soul, the center of your being, the heart is established by grace. Uh, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. In other words, legalistic observance of diet. We have an altar uh, from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have such tremendous privileges in Christ. And so he brings us right back to that. Therefore, verse 12, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, that is, by means of his own death, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Personal sense of destiny, living today in light of eternity. So, he will conclude, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And then the closing 
benediction, one of my favorites now, may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. So that summarizes, you didn't think I could do it. That's seven chapters of Hebrews in 38 minutes. And that puts our focus, as always, on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that what he endured is nothing compared to what we endure. And yet, we're the ones who want to wimp out. But he's the one who strengthens us. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, fly over these chapters and get a good overview and synthesis of of what this uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying, for his message is as vital for us today as it is at any time and for believers of any generation, including the first time, uh, the initial recipients. Father, we need to hear this because so often we're tempted to just uh, become complacent, to relax, to take things easy, to give up, to complain, to get become self-absorbed and self-focused and to begin to just uh, follow our own narcissistic little path. But we need to put our focus on Jesus Christ and remember we're here. We have a mission. We don't always understand what it is. We don't un- always understand why we're there, but we do understand how we are to respond and react to the problems, adversities, and speed bumps that we face in carrying out that mission. And so we pray that you might encourage us with this message, and God the Holy Spirit would make it very clear to us what our response is to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.